Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Our text is most of the chapter this morning. Um, first 38 verses. As you're turning, I'll just simply observe, I finally sucked up my courage after five and a half years to wear a blue shirt and khaki pants into the pulpit. I, I don't know if you track this kind of stuff or not. Um, you know, about 15 years ago, early in my ministry, uh, I, I wrote, <laughs> wore khaki pants and a blue shirt under my robe, uh, and I got so dressed down in the narthex by someone who said I should never, ever, ever wear anything other than gray pants under my robe. Uh, I was scarred. Uh, so uh, it took me 15 years of ministry to, well, there, it took me about 10 years to do it again. I haven't done it since I've been here. So there you go. Uh, I woke up this morning, coming back from vacation. I said, why not? Let's just go crazy and wear the blue shirt. <laughs> but anyways, that's not really appropriate to anything. I just thought I'd mention it. We're looking here at John chapter 9 uh, after taking a week over Memorial Day, um, thanks to Stephen Felger for preaching from Isaiah 55, come back to John's gospel, uh, and here we have really one of my favorite chapters in all of this gospel, uh, this story of this man born blind, which is such a parable and points us to our faithful Savior Jesus Christ and what he's done in our lives, so that every single one of us, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say with this man, there's lots of things I don't know, this one thing I I know. Once I was blind, but now I see. That only happens because God, by his amazing grace through Jesus Christ, rescues us. He delivers us from us. And we're going to see how that's the case this morning if the Holy Spirit helps us. Let's ask him to do that this morning. Would you pray with me, please? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do ask you uh, to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Holy Spirit, we pray, come. Every week we ask you to open our eyes of faith, because unless you do that, we will not see. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, open our eyes of faith this morning, that we might see glorious riches in this portion of your gospel, but above all, may we see Jesus and believe in him and worship him. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's 38 verses in our section this morning, but we're going to read the first 11 verses uh, and then pick up at verse 30 and read to the end of the section. So John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not this, that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So we went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. 
He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now to verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the beginning of the world has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Some of you undoubtedly know the story behind John Newton's most famous hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, You might remember that Newton was born to a Christian mother and an unbelieving seafaring father. Um, Newton was struggling as a child and as a teenager. Eventually, His father agreed for him to go to sea. Newton was actually impressed into the British Navy. Uh, He was impressed at an officer's raid, but but he lived such a wild and dissolute life, even on ship, getting drunk, disobeying orders, uh, that he was actually beaten several times and finally reduced in rank to that of a common seaman. Uh, After his term in the Navy was up, eventually he left the Navy, Uh, But he became involved in stealing slaves from Africa uh, and sending them into bondage into the New World. Uh, Ironically, one of the ships that he served on, one of the slaver ships, he he was so repellent to the rest of the crew that he was actually himself sold into slavery in Africa, held under the control of some key tribal leaders, including one known as the Princess He would be eventually rescued by a a British sea captain who was a friend of his father's. But on the way home from Africa back to England, the ship that he was on was actually caught up in a horrendous gale. And he thought, Newton did, that he was going to die. And so that day, Newton prayed. He cried out to God. He asked God to deliver him. And God did. He not only delivered him from the storm, but but he also brought him that day from darkness to light. Decades later, after he had become an Anglican clergyman, um, he reflected upon his conversion as he wrote the words to the hymn that we know as Amazing Grace, but which he titled in 1772, Faith's Review and Expectation. I think Newton's title actually probably is a better title, Faith's Review. When you think of that first verse, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, 
When you think of that first verse, you can see how Newton was reviewing in the past, his conversion. How did he come to faith in the past? What happened to him? He was a wretch who was saved. He was lost, and then he was found. He was blind, he said, but now I see. Of course, something quite similar is going on here in our passage this morning. Here in John chapter 9, we have a man who is born, physically born, blind, who had always known darkness, and, and Jesus opens his eyes. He once was blind, but now he sees. He once was in darkness, but now he's been brought into the light. But we ha- what we have here is not just a story of a tremendous miracle. What we also have here is a picture of us all. Because, friends, we were all born blind, spiritually so, And the only way that blind people, those who are spiritually blind, are able to see, to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, the only way that we are able to be brought out of spiritual darkness into light is for Jesus to give us new sight. It's for Jesus to actually make us new. That's what's going on here in this passage in John chapter 9. But this this account in John 9 is also important in terms of what what John is doing with his gospel. From chapter 5, the middle of chapter 5, all the way through chapter 8, we've seen how Jesus and the Jews, the Jewish leaders, uh, the Pharisees, yes, but scribes, Sadducees, and others, all linked together in John's gospel under the heading of the Jews. Jesus and the Jews have been in an escalating and increasingly hostile conversation, dialogue. As Jesus continues to tell them that he has been sent from God and that he is in fact God who is going to offer himself for the life of the world. And after that that hostile conversation came to an end at the end of chapter 8, what we have here in John chapter 9 as well as in 10 and 11 are are three chapters in which we, we have displayed before our eyes who Jesus truly is. Jesus truly is the light of the world. Jesus truly is the good shepherd. Jesus truly is the resurrection and the life. Chapters 9, 10, and 11. But we'll see this not simply because Jesus tells us, but we'll see this because Jesus shows us. He shows us, and he shows us here in John 9, how it is that that those who are in darkness, those who are blind, might actually come to see Jesus as the true light, the light of the world, might have their spiritual sight restored to see him. You see, these signs in John 9, 10, and 11 point to things signified and ultimately point us to Jesus, that 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 it's only through Jesus that any of us can be transformed, only through Jesus that we will come into his light. The only way that's going to happen is if Jesus intervenes. I mean, that's what happens here, isn't it? Jesus intervenes in such a real, tangible fashion that he he actually radically transforms this man. This man was born blind. This man was a poor beggar. This man never knew what it was to see. Why was he in this condition? I mean, that, that was the question that the disciples asked, isn't it? 
It's no, I think it's kind of striking that the first thing they think of is they see this blind man, they see this poor beggar presumably sitting outside of the temple, is, is not, hey, how can we help this man? It's whose fault is this? They ask a kind of theological question, a kind of theoretical question rather than a practical one. It was almost as though the disciples were trying to figure out why they didn't need to intervene on this man's behalf. Do you see what they say? After they pass by in verse 1, verse 2, his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Oh, if the blindness was his fault, well, we can't intervene here. This man's done this to himself. He's just simply gotten his just desserts for what he's done. If it's his parents' fault, well, we can't get involved here. This is something that was fated upon him, the sins of the third and fourth generation being, being visited upon him. We can't intervene and so disrupt God's judgment. It's almost as, say, as though they were saying whether his sin was one of nature or nurture, whether it was simply individual or systemic sin, whatever it was, they didn't need to bother with him. What did Jesus say? What reason does Jesus give to intervene in this situation? Did you see it? We read it together. Look at it again. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It's not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So what does Jesus say? He says it wasn't nature or nurture. It wasn't individual or systemic reasons for his blindness. Rather, Jesus was saying that all of this man's life was leading him to this moment. From the time he was born and all the struggle that he had because he was born blind, the, the, the days and weeks and years that he spent begging for his life, presumably been cast out of his home because his parents didn't want to care for him anymore. So he had to raise his own money by begging on the street outside the temple. His entire life was leading him to this moment where the works of God might be displayed. Jesus was sent to work the works of God to show that he was the light of the world, which meant that this man's life was meant to bring him to this moment where he would come to know Jesus as the light of the world. And seeing in Jesus the light of the world, he would come to see the glory of God. That's important for us, I think. Especially as we wrestle with difficult things that come into our lives. Certainly there are some difficult things that are, in fact, our fault. Other difficult things that come as a result of the families we've been born into. Yes, all that's true. But there are many things that come into our lives where we can't account for them that way. And we wonder, what in the world is going on? Why have we been brought to this difficulty? Why have we been brought to this moment? We've had several difficult things in our family's life together over the 30 years that Sarah and I have been together. Undoubtedly, though, Sarah's cancer is the most difficult. I'll never forget the conversation that we had with the colorectal surgeon after Sarah's surgery in September. He was going over the pathology report and he remarked to us with, well, with no family history and with no symptoms and no envir environmental factors, your cancer is what we call sporadic, which means we don't know why you have it. And the surgeon was actually saying it wasn't your sin, right? 
It wasn't something you did, some kind of personal thing that caused the cancer to come. It wasn't your parents' fault. There wasn't genetic or family reasons there, family history. But the best he could do was simply beyond that to say, I don't know. As hard as it is sometimes for us to hear, we have to hear what Jesus is saying here. Namely, that, that somehow, I believe that all that has been happening in Sarah and our, my life and our life together is so that the works of God might be displayed. That, that we might see the works of him who sent us. That, that Jesus somehow might be seen as the light of the world. Doesn't mean it's not hard. Doesn't, doesn't mean it's not terrible. Doesn't mean that we don't grieve it. Certainly this blind man grieved from the moment of his birth and he couldn't see and he wondered what in the world he was missing. Certainly he grieved being a beggar and yet Jesus himself says, it's for this moment. And here we are 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this blind man. Still talking about how his very life being brought to this moment was so that the glory of God might be seen and Jesus might be seen as the light of the world. Listen, if that's true for him, it's true for you too. It's true for you too. I don't know what difficult thing you've been wrestling with that is truly horrible and hard and you wish that it didn't happen. But I do know this. I do know this, that Jesus himself is at work and he is working his work so that you might see and others might see that he's the light of the world. That he has, in fact, brought you to this moment to work the works of God in you. I mean, that's what it is for the blind man, isn't it? He's been brought to this moment. And what does Jesus do? Well, it's simple, isn't it? I mean, he makes some mud. The same stuff out of which we are all created, the dust of the earth. He takes some dirt, makes some mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go to the pool called Sent. The one who is sent from God sends this man to the pool to wash. The man washes, and what happens? His eyes are open. He can see, and immediately everything changed. This man who was once blind can now see. This man who knew darkness now knew light. And now he was open to, to the interrogation of others. You see, the bulk of this chapter, from verses 9 to 34, really involves an interrogation. This man who was once blind, but now he, he could see, there's inc increasingly hostile interrogation of what's happened to him. In fact, the interrogation he experiences actually parallels the increasingly hostile interrogation Jesus goes through from chapters 5 to 8 in John's Gospel. And as this man is being interrogated, there are two questions that keep coming up over and over again. First, what happened? And then in the light of what happened, who is Jesus? Uh, in terms of what happened, we actually see the pattern in the first explanation. We read it together in verses 8 to 11. Look at it again. Uh, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. 
Now, this formerly blind man is going to have to repeat the same story three more times. In verse 15, verse 25, verse 30, each time as he tells his story, he does so in a more concise fashion, but he never wavers from the facts. Namely, I was blind. Jesus put mud on my eyes. He sent me. I washed, and now I see. And he sticks to this account even as the pressure mounts. Starting in verse 18, we didn't read it, but extending from there all the way to verse 34, he he and his family are subjected to to greater formal pressure. The the Jewish leaders of their local synagogue, they actually conduct a formal hearing. They put together a kind of judicial commission and and they summon the parents first to, to testify concerning whether this is their son and whether he was in fact blind and what's happened here. And the parents are fearful of testifying fully, and they say, ask him, he's of age. And so in verse 24, the man himself is brought, required to testify. And underlying the entire formal process was a fear, a fear that that if somehow they were to identify with Jesus, Jesus is the one who can give blind men their sight, that, that they would actually know excommunication. They would be put out of the synagogue. Now you've got to understand, being put out of the synagogue, excommunication was not just a religious factor, but also a social pressure. Because not only would you be put out of the place where you were worshiping, but you would also be shunned by everyone else in the synagogue. And shunning wasn't simply social, there were also economic realities there. This was tremendous cultural pressure being brought to bear upon this man who was blind, but now could see. But what does he do? How does he respond to the cultural, economic, social pressure that's being brought to bear upon him? Look at what he does. Look at verse 24. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, that is Jesus, is a sinner, He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I say. Even in the face of all of this pressure, cultural, religious, economic pressure, what does the man do? He testifies, doesn't he? I don't know about all that, but one thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Friends, shouldn't we be like this? Shouldn't this be our strategy in this moment? There is so much fear right now about our culture, over our culture, and this cultural moment. Our culture seems to be unraveling. Of course, our culture has always been unraveling. It's been unraveling for 2,000 years. If you know history, you know that. But this moment does seem to have some unique pressures for us today. And we're so fearful of it. We're fearful and worrying about what the left hand might do or what the right hand might do. We're concerned about Washington or Nashville or or the Memphis City Council and what they might demand of us. But right here, this is all we need. This is what we need to do. This man was facing real pressure with real cultural, religious, and economic costs. And when he is confronted by authorities who desire to do him harm, what did he do? What should we do? We tell the truth. We tell the truth about what's happened to us. 
I was once blind, but now I see because Jesus made it so. That was what the early church did. The common pattern of the early church. I think of Polycarp, the old bishop of Smyrna from the second century, one of the great early martyrs of the church. Uh, he was arrested and he's brought into the Colosseum by the local authorities. And, and they demanded of him that he reproach Christ and, and, and show loyalty to Caesar by praying to him, by burning the incense and swearing by the luck of Caesar. And, and, and if they didn't, then he would be killed, thrown to the lions or burnt at the stake. And as the pressure mounts, and he sees that it's not just cultural pressure, or political pressure, economic pressure, but it's, it's going to cost him his own life. What does, what does Polycarp do? He says this, 86 years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? You hear what he said? How can I turn away from Jesus? How can I turn away from this one who, who brought me out of darkness into light? Because I once was blind, but now I see. Certainly if the early church did that, that's all we need, isn't it? It's all we need for this, this cultural moment is simply tell what is true. That Jesus has made all the difference for us. And has changed us and transformed us and brought us out of darkness and blindness into the light so we can see. That's what he did here. That's what happened. He made this blind man see. But if Jesus could cause this blind man to see, then, then it leads quite naturally to the second question. Not simply what happened, but who is Jesus? And that's where the debate centers in this passage in, in verse 16. You'd find that some were saying, well, that Jesus is not from God. He, he's broken the Sabbath. He's, in fact, a sinner. In verse 24, he's actually outside of God's will. He doesn't comply with Moses, they said. But the healed man, when he's asked, he reasons that Jesus must at least be a prophet, in verse 17. And in the section we read together in verses 30 to 33, which is the longest speech in the entire scene, he says that Jesus must be from God. Because God doesn't hear sinners, those who hold sin in their hearts, God does not listen to them. That's Psalms 66, verse 18. He's not a sinner. God clearly heard him. How do we know? Well, because there was a man who was once blind, but now he can see. And so Jesus must be from God. Now, what you have to see in this debate that, that, that's unfolding in chapter 9 of John's gospel is that they are wrestling over the most important question of which any one of us can wrestle. Namely, who is Jesus? Because, friends, if Jesus is not from God, if Jesus is simply a religious teacher or a dime store prophet or a sage or a moral example, friends, he's simply a man like other men. He studied, perhaps, incredibly wise, but we can safely ignore incredibly wise people, can't we? But listen, if Jesus is from God, if Jesus has the power to open the eyes of the blind, whether those who are physically blind or those who are spiritually so, if Jesus can make you a new man or a new woman, a new person, 
Even though you were your sinner and you had a darkened heart, darkened soul, if Jesus can change you, if Jesus is in fact God, then everything that we know about the world has to change. It must change if Jesus is from God. Because here's the reality. You and I, we're, we're blind. We're, we're no different from this blind man. We are born in such a way that our hearts are darkened and our, our wills, are, our desires are disordered and, and our wills are, are bent. They're bent in the direction of, of seeking ourselves and what we want. We, we can't save ourselves from ourselves. Our wills are, are bound to do what they desire and our desires being disordered will always lead us astray. The most foolish thing we can do is trust our heart, isn't it? Because our hearts will, are inevitably leading us astray. And we can't save ourselves from that. In fact, here's the other thing. Not only can we not save ourselves, we can't rescue or deliver ourselves. We don't want to be rescued. We really, in fact, love the darkness. That's what John's Gospels already told us, that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. Their deeds demonstrate the fact that our, our desires are evil, our wants are our own, and our ways, uh, they're past finding out. You see, the problem isn't that we are good people that simply have moral blind spots. Rather, we are those who love our own ways and love our own desires and, and are twisted through and through, which means if, if we're ever going to be free, if we're ever going to be delivered or rescued, delivered from our darkness and brought into the light of life. Someone else has to do it for us. We can't do it for ourselves. And what this place in the Bible is saying is the only person who can do that for you is Jesus. He's the one who's from God. But he's also the one who's here today by his spirit, and he's inviting you to himself. Just as he did for this blind man, so he's doing for you today. He's inviting you to come. In fact, he's looking for you. He, he's searching for you. And, and as he searches for you, he, he's inviting you to come to believe in him. That's what he did with this man. Look at verse 35. We, we read it. Jesus had heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, which signals that he was searching for him, Jesus said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, we can forgive the blind man for, the man formerly blind now, the man who could see, for, for not fully understanding what Jesus is getting at with this question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Undoubtedly, if this man had been in the synagogue, he would have known where the title came from. That title, the Son of Man, comes from Daniel chapter 9. Excuse me, Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, what you have pictured there is the Ancient of Days, God the Father, giving authority over the nations to one like the Son of Man. And throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all use the title to signal that Jesus is in fact this one that Daniel had seen, this one to whom God the Father had given authority over the nations, this one who was the king of the world, the one who was also the savior of men. And so Jesus was saying, do you believe in the Son of Man? And and the blind man certainly understood what that title stood for, but he didn't connect that necessarily to Jesus. And so he asks an honest, sincere question. In verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. 
and it is he who is speaking to you. You've seen him. He's he's the one who opened your eyes. You've seen him. He's the one who, who opened your physical eyes. He's also the one who opened your spiritual eyes. Jesus says, I am the son of man. Do you believe in me? Will you believe in me? Friends, that's, Jesus is inviting you to do the same this morning. That's what he's asking you. Some of you can actually testify to a moment in time. You know the moment in time where you move from darkness to light. You were eight years old or 18, 38, 68. You, you, can, you can give the moment in time where it was darkness, darkness, darkest, light. And you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you saw the glory, the light of God in the face of Jesus Christ and you believed. Others of you, it was gradual as you grew up or there was never a moment where you didn't believe. But friends, the reason why we participate in corporate worship week after week is we need to be brought again and again out of our darkness into the light. We need to come again and again to rest upon and to to receive Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel, to embrace him yet again. Because as we wander in this world and we stray through these vanity fairs of our lives, we, sometimes we go astray and our hearts are captured by the, the idols of this world. That's what we confessed this morning as we worked our way through the Ten Commandments and in the corporate confession of sin. We have other gods before him or beside him. We create images for ourselves, don't we? And so what Jesus is inviting you to is to, is to come again, is to rest your heart in him again. It's to to receive, to believe in him again, to respond just like this man does to the invitation. How does he respond? Do you see it? It's in verse 38. Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He, He bowed down before him. He did obeisance to him. Why? Why does he worship? Why does he believe? This one thing I know, once I was blind, but now I see. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, that is the testimony of so many in this room, that we were once blind, but now we see, and we come again, Lord, to rest our hearts in you. And in fact to come from darkness into the light yet again. That's the process of sanctification, that you are at work in our lives, dying to our sin and rising again to new life to follow after you in these new ways of obedience, as we've already affirmed. Lord, please continue your work of sanctification in us that we might again and again, by your amazing grace, declare the truth about us, but also declare the truth about you, that you rescue sinners and you bring them all the way home. Lord, bring us all the way home so that we might praise you all of our days throughout eternity and rejoice in your goodness and grace. Grant us this grace, Lord, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.